0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church Podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host. And Brew Church is a community located in North Kansas City, committed to authenticity, inclusivity, asking the difficult questions, and embracing abundant life. And for this episode, the content that we have is from our Sunday recording. Uh, I hope that it's meaningful for you and uh, gives you some ideas to think about and maybe inspires you to enjoy. Hello, everybody. We took a week hiatus, and my wife and I were uh, away, and so sometimes when you come back, you're like, man, I miss this place. (laughs) So, just wanted to start out with that, because I really did miss all of you all. I got to grab the stand, Um, so I got to do the awkward transition. That's what happens when you don't have audio-visual. That is why people do that, because they uh, can transition a lot more smoothly and then it's like, oh wow, they're already there. So uh, as Krista mentioned, we're talking about this idea of the sacred and where we might find it. Uh, But first, I I wanna talk a little bit about uh, something called the rolling stop. Are you familiar with the rolling stop? but you know what the rolling stop is. Okay, you might know as soon as I describe it. It's when you come to a stop sign, or a right turn, uh, when the light is red, and and you slow down enough to make it seem like you stopped, but you don't actually stop. You just slow down enough to be like, okay, I stopped, and then you go, right? Has anybody ever done the rolling stop? It's, It's an advanced driving maneuver. It's for those of us who are advanced at driving. Um, And when I took my first driver's test, uh, I wanted to show the instructor just how advanced at driving I was. (laughs) And so the first stop sign we come to, I perform one of these these advanced maneuvers, uh, the rolling stop. And she failed me. And when she described why she had failed me, it wasn't the fact that I couldn't parallel park after like five attempts, or it wasn't the fact that I was going way under the speed limit, because I was so afraid of going one mile over the speed limit. The first thing she said, and really the only thing she said was, you didn't really come to a full stop at that first stop sign. (laughs) Apparently a rolling stop isn't okay. Uh, When you come to a stop sign, this is how she described it to me, you're supposed to come to a complete stop. And this is how you know you came to a complete stop. You ready for this? This is all physics. You rock forward a little bit because your body is still moving when the car has stopped, but then you rest back into your seat. The moment you rest back into your seat, you have come to a complete stop. How many of you rest back in your seat when you come to a stop sign if there's no car there? Okay, one person. (laughs) The instructor had apparently never been to Mexico where stop signs mean nothing and four-way stops are just constant flows of traffic and the only way to get through is if you're aggressive or someone's nice. Stop signs don't exist in Mexico, but even here, except for one person in the room, (laughs) we all know (laughs) that the the full stop isn't always necessary, right? If there's nobody there, what's it going to hurt? We're just going to, you know, come to the slow, the rolling stop, and then we're going to go. Or if somebody just passed by and there's nobody to deal with, we're going to do the rolling stop. Or if it's a red light and there's nobody there and we're turning right, We're not going to come to a full stop, right? we got to get onto the other road. we got to keep going, so we're going to do the rolling stop. We all know that it's not an ethical issue. The rule is meant to prevent people from blowing through the intersection without paying attention to cross traffic. It's a safety thing. And once we know what it's about, once we know what's actually important, why the rule is there, we can bend the rules a little bit because we keep the main thing in mind, which is not harming the person that is going across, right? The rule becomes less important. This can be translated to other areas in life. For example, many kids are taught that they shouldn't talk to strangers, and to never, ever take candy from a stranger in a van, which I will go on record and say I've never personally experienced that, and nobody in my life that I know, um, that at least nobody's told me, that they've experienced that. So I don't know where people came up with this idea that there's a bunch of strangers giving out candy, um, but I've never never really heard of it actually happening in real life. Uh, that's just me. Regardless, the rule of don't talk to strangers as kids is to instill this idea that we should have a sense of discernment. We should have this sense of like, okay, maybe not everybody is somebody that we should approach and ask five million questions like kids at a certain age tend to do. That gets really annoying. But it would be a really strange rule to live by into adulthood. Like if today, all of us in this room, if we didn't talk to strangers, that would be really strange because... Some of the most important people in our lives were strangers at some point. As we get older, wiser, the rule becomes less important. All of us are handed a set of rules to live by. Right and wrong, good or bad, and these rules help us navigate life. They help us understand how to treat each other what it means to be in a community of people, what it means to live in a society, things like driving, laws to prevent harm, or how to behave in certain scenarios, like there's certain rules that sometimes are unspoken in certain public spaces, like concerts and things like that, or a library, Uh, don't talk, because people are reading and they're trying to concentrate, or studying. And religion has always played a role In some of this. Because these rules, they come from our parents, they come from our mentors, uh, they come from society, and for many of us, some of the rules that we live by come from our religious upbringing. Religion has always sort of played a role in that. And it goes back to the days when we didn't really understand how a lot of things worked, including things like diseases or natural disasters. And so religion had these rules to define what was pure and what was impure, or we can say what was clean and what was not clean, so that you could get rid of the impurities and avoid, you know, something going wrong. So that you could appease whatever powers existed that decide how things happen. That's kind of some of what religion did at some, p- some point in the past. You can see it in the ancient Jewish tradition where there were rules very clearly about what was clean and unclean. For example, uh, the sick were outcasts. They were actually kind of uh, very advanced in this way of thinking. It wasn't as prominent in other traditions. But they would put the sick on the edges of town to keep others from getting sick. They didn't necessarily know How diseases spread, they just had observed and were like, okay, let's put them on the edge of town. But eventually, like any rule, these rules of the Jewish tradition became ways to exclude, to oppress, and to shame. The sick were not only quarantined, they were ignored, looked down upon, and sometimes felt some sense of shame because whatever they were going through must have been because they did something wrong. When rules are taken too seriously, they can cease serving their purpose and they can become tools of oppression and harm. And sometimes the rules change. Something comes in, whether it's a new way of thinking, whether it's a leader that says, hey, why do we do that the way we do that? Can can we change the way we do it? Um, And there's a story in the New Testament when a man named Peter, uh, who uh, grew up as a Jew, has this vision. And in this vision, he gets challenged to change his ideas of what was clean and unclean. The story is in Acts 10, and it says this. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey, Peter Peter went on the roof to pray. That's staying in there. (laughs) He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven open up and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. And in it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, "Get up p- Peter, kill and eat." But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. And the voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. The dude was having a hunger dream. (laughs) But this story is significant because it's a massive shift in something that was very important to that culture, a moment when the rules changed. The writer of Acts was writing to a particular context, and in this story, the writer seems to be challenging them to change what they viewed as pure and impure so that they could adopt new rules that were less oppressive because the ones who did only eat the pure things were very judgmental of anybody that didn't do what they did. They thought they were better than everybody else. Fast forward to uh, today. We don't really use the language of clean and unclean as much anymore, but there's still a dichotomy that fits within the same area. It's just a different version of it. And typically we might use the words holy or profane, Or the words that we're going to use for the rest of this conversation? Sacred and secular. Have you heard those words before? Sacred being the things that are about God, that God is present within, that God allows or that have some value in the religious world. And secular being the opposite of that. This word is used to define things that are devoid of God or that God might even be against. And depending on the version of Christianity we've encountered, the goalpost may vary. For some people, the word sacred is used a bit more freely. For others, the sacred is very limited. Maybe it's only sacred if it uses the insider language of Christianity, or because it's defined as sacred by leaders who are apparently qualified to label such things as sacred. Or it's sacred simply because it's made by someone that call themselves a Christian, and so, vis-a-vis, it's sacred. Some of us have been told certain things, like certain movies, books, TV shows, or music should be avoided because they were too secular. I remember being in this uh, college group. And we were just having a you know col- conversation at a retreat. And I told one of the leaders, I was like, hey, I'm a really big fan of Jack Johnson. I'm trying to learn the guitar. That uh, lasted about two weeks. Um, so, <laughs> but I, I did get close to learning banana pancakes. And I was telling him, I was like, I love this song, Banana Pancakes, by Jack Johnson. And he's like, you shouldn't listen to Jack Johnson. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't know if I'll be a part of this group anymore <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> if you can't, uh, Don't want us to listen to Jack Johnson. (laughs) These labels of sacred and secular have their place, but just like the ideas of clean and unclean created unnecessary separation, oppressive rules, I would argue that the labels of sacred and secular have caused their own damage. For example, I find it fascinating that many people consider Halloween to be a satanic holiday When its origins are more Christian than Christmas, there weren't evergreen trees in the Middle East. (laughs) There's a reason we use trees, (laughs) because it's from a different religious tradition. But Halloween, on the other hand, comes from All Saints Day, which is a day when the church would acknowledge all the people that have died throughout the year as a way to collectively grieve together, which is beautiful. We don't really grieve together as much as we should. Uh, Maybe we'll do that sometime at Brew Church. But it was a wonderful, beautiful thing. And then the day before was All Hallows' Eve. And on that day, they would celebrate the harvest. Both of those two (laughs) holidays (laughs) were Christian. But because it's considered secular nowadays, even satanic by some people, there are so many who miss out on the wonderful celebration of Halloween. And then All Saints Day as well. They just ignore that one. Or take good art. There are people that will avoid some of the most sacred, beautiful, moving, transformative music, movies, books, and imagery because it's secular. But it goes deeper than that. One of the victims, and this one isn't directly related, or isn't directly talked about, but it's related to the sacred-secular dichotomy. One of the victims has been the body. Some of us were told that the body is profane and untrustworthy, that it's the source of sin, that things like emotions, enjoyment, or pleasure are wrong, that you're not supposed to dance, because that's just too fun. You can't dance. But this has caused some people to have trouble trusting themselves, their intuition, the inner voice, because they were taught to be suspicious of it. It's led people to become disembodied, to not feel, because feeling emotions is wrong and feelings aren't true. But when we prevent ourselves from feeling especially those emotions like grief and pain, we also prevent ourselves from fully feeling the things like joy and love because when we block out feelings, we block out the positive ones as well. At its worst, the sacred-secular dichotomy has been violent. When Christian settlers came to America, they believed that a lot of the stories and traditions of the indigenous people were secular and at their worst, evil. So through uh, oppressive and violent tactics, they converted them. They forced them to convert, cutting their hair, putting on new clothes, when if they would have listened to their stories and they would have heard stories like the corn mother who breaks her body to feed her children so that they may live. If you've ever been to a communion service in a, in a Christian context, that should sound very familiar. Maybe the sacred is in more places than we think it is. I would argue that as harmful as this sacred-secular dichotomy can be, that it's still helpful to be able to name what is sacred as a way to define the things that we should look for. The things that move us, that inspire us, that heal us. But the question for tonight is, is there a more helpful way to think about the sacred? There's a story in scripture that has been a source of conversation around the sacred. And it's a few chapters later in Acts, in Acts 17. And this time it's about a man named Paul. Paul. And the story begins like this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued with the synagogue, with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The dude was just picking fights with people. And also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him, and some said... What does this pretentious babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching that you're presenting is? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. So when Paul first walks into this town, he's distressed because he looks at the marketplace and he's like, look at all these idols. Look at all these people profiting off the needs of safety and happiness and telling people, if you buy this, you will be whole and complete. Some of the same idols that we have in our marketplace, that's a completely different conversation for another time, but I will leave that one there as a nugget in your brain for future thought. But then he finds himself in this debate between two philosophies, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And uh, these two philosophies were competing philosophies on opposite sides of the spectrum. The Epicureans believed that human happiness only happened in pleasures of the body, in things you could see, touch, and feel. That the sacred was only in what you could see, touch, and feel. The Stoics, on the other hand, Located human happiness only in the virtues of the soul, in ideas, abstract things. That the sacred was something that you can't see, feel, or touch. It's something abstract. One was embodied, the other was disembodied. And to both groups, Paul says this. I can't tell if this was like sarcastic or if he was being genuine here, but I'm just going to assume he was being genuine. Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it This God is Lord of heaven and earth. This God does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is it served by human hands as though God needs anything. God is the one who gives to all mortals life and breath, and also to all things. For in God, I skipped a little bit, for in God we live and move and have our being. So Paul is speaking to both of these groups and he makes this radical statement, something that challenges not just both of them, but his own religious tradition of Judaism. He says, the thing you've been looking for that you don't even have words for, that's too big to put a name to, the thing that animates everything in which we live and move and have our being, that thing is the thing. That is the sacred It's a synthesis of both your ideas. Because God is both infinite and also took on flesh. No one group has a monopoly on God. And this God, this sacredness, cannot be housed in temples, as my tradition seems to think. No, this God, this sacredness, is everywhere. Peter in his dream heard the words, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And then Paul says, This God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. The sacred is found everywhere. It can be found within anything. And what the writer of Acts seems to be saying with these two stories, because one writer wrote them, at least that's what people think, is that the sacred isn't something that one group, one religious tradition has a monopoly on. It's the unknown God. The one we can't put a name to sometimes. That words can't fully capture, this thing that's too hard to grasp. But it also takes on flesh. It's both located in our bodies and in the world around us, And in helpful, life-giving theologies, philosophies, narratives. It's not defined by ambiguous rules, rather, it's defined by the things most important to the one that came in the flesh. Things like love, compassion, self-sacrifice, beauty, deep connection. What if the church isn't supposed to be the place that houses the sacred? that monopolizes it, that says we have it and you don't, but rather it's the place where we teach each other how to see it everywhere else. That maybe gives some parameters so that we can see the sacred all around us. What if Christian settlers, instead of conquering the indigenous people, kind of like Paul did, would have said, okay, where do our two ideas, the way we talk about the sacred, where do they connect? Oh, your ideas of the sacred seem to relate to our ideas of the sacred. What can we teach each other? What if the sacred isn't defined by the words that we use? Maybe, possibly, but this can also be another category. What if it's defined by the results that the words bring? Do the words set people free, do they heal, do they include, do they stir compassion, do they widen who is in, or do they oppress, harm, exclude, create suspicion and fear, and create a smaller and smaller group who is in, and a bigger and bigger group who is out? What if the sacred is within every single one of us, and thus, we can trust that voice, that intuition that is leading us to become whole, free, and loving. And what if any definitions of the sacred are simply there to try to help us see the sacred everywhere else? Like the rules, they're only there as a way to serve some bigger purpose, but they are not the purpose in and of themselves. For example, Scripture tells us about the sacred, and in that way it's sacred, but scripture isn't God itself. One of my favorite authors, Richard War, says it this way, when I know that the world around me is both the hiding place and the revelation of God, the sacred, I can no longer make a distinction between the natural and the supernatural, between the holy and the profane, as this divine voice makes clear to a very resistant Peter in Acts 10, Everything I see and know can be indeed holy. And this divine presence, this sacredness, seeks connection and communion. There are versions of religion that try to create boundaries around the sacred and suspicion around anything else. And uh, they can be marketed because uh, you can say things like, well, we have all the deep answers to life, so come to us and tithe to us, and make this thing bigger because this is the place where all of it's found. And then there are versions of religion, and I, I'm just going to be honest, like this, this could put me out of a job if we all took it seriously, but I'm okay with it because sometimes that needs to happen. These versions teach us how to see the sacred all around us, and they're less marketable because at some point we all become the gurus of the sacred. And then we don't need somebody else to tell us where the sacred's at because we have figured out how to see it all around us. Luckily, from my experience at least, the sacred seems to be more like the latter version than the first version. Some of the places that I've seen the sacred the most clearly haven't been in a church. For example, sitting in a movie theater crying after all the credits of Coco have rolled and there's no longer anything on the screen and nobody else in the theater, (laughs) and my wife and I are sitting there and I'm just bawling my eyes out, that moment was sacred. Holding my niece in my arms and just watching her breathe as she fell asleep, that was sacred. Running around in the snow with my dog, getting wet and cold and risking getting sick, that was sacred. Looking out at the Grand Canyon, sacred. Sitting on the couch with my wife and opening up and sharing what's going on inside, sacred. Now, I will admit I have experienced the sacred in the church. That's that's where I first experienced the sacred very clearly. It was in a Catholic mass singing the Lord's Prayer. And I felt the sacred in a deep way. But the sacred isn't just housed in buildings. <laughs> it's all around us. Do not call profane what God has made clean. And according to Genesis 1, God made everything, including us, including our bodies, our intuition, our emotions, our thoughts, and said, that's good, that's good, That. oh, wait, 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 this one, that's very good, very good indeed. There's a place for healthy suspicion, for defining things as harmful and helpful. But the sacred, that's all around us, and it can be found in the most unexpected places. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone.